My one quick announcement uh, before we move into our message, which I'm thrilled to have Erica beside me for mm -hmm. here, um, is that uh, as we're looking at our calendar ahead for our Lent uh, talks here, uh, we are uh, we're making a switch. So next Sunday, we just wanted to make everybody aware in case uh, you particularly have one of our false beliefs in mind that we're um, that you wanting to leave behind. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about Christian supremacy. That's going to be the false belief that we leave behind. That was originally slated, excuse me, for April 3rd, but we're going to move that to next Sunday. And then we will do Romance Will Complete You on April 3rd, which was originally scheduled for next Sunday. So we're just flipping those in our schedule, uh, looking ahead. And um, yeah, but we, uh, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because today, we have a false belief that we want to talk about. And so uh, I have the amazing Erica McClinn beside me. I'm also passing the torch remotely over to Haley, my fellow pastor here, who uh, will help get us going for today. So Haley. Yes, good morning. Thank you, Vince. Um, so during the season of Lent, we are following kind of the traditional model of giving something up or taking on a new practice. And we're using that as our guide each week. So last week, we talked about giving up a blueprint of our life and our relationship with God. And this week, I am really excited to be talking with Erica about giving up the view of the Bible as an idol. So as we'll walk through some of the bigger overt ways of what idolizing scripture looks like, some of the more subtle ways, and then each week, it's our goal to leave you not just hanging, that's not the end of it, but that there is something more hopeful, something that feels to us um, to be more helpful and healthier as you navigate some of these swaps. Um, so Erica, thank you so much for um, bringing us this message this morning. As we get started with our conversation, I would love if you could share from your own experience what idolizing the Bible in overt ways has looked like. Yeah, definitely. So um, I guess just to get started growing up, I did go to a Christian school. Um, so I had religion classes. I was used to going to chapel every week um, and the school was on the more conservative side. Um, so uh, we were taught um, a very like kind of literal understanding of the Bible. The Bible was to be taken literally, literally. Um, and um, there there wasn't a lot of room for critique or asking questions um it was um kind of the image uh i had in my head of the bible being divinely inspired uh was that there was like a scribe you know back in the day and god was like dictating to him what to put in the bible and then that's what we had and so if you had any questions or things didn't make sense uh it's it was kind of like yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um and and it, it kind of uh, made it very difficult to kind of see any nuance in the Bible um, because uh, everything was kind of just like law. Um, and then as I kind of started to move out of that context um, after college and started to go to different kinds of churches um, and get immersed in different 
um, kinds of Christian communities. Um, I saw not so much that being at play, um, but that there was a very heavy emphasis put on the various laws and rules in the Bible. Um, and I saw um, that being very core to a lot of messages in churches, um, particularly as it had to do with romantic relationships. And if um, someone were to ask or challenge or say, you know, what, why is this the case? A lot of times it would kind of just be like, oh, well, that's just what the Bible says. And, and you can't argue with the Bible. And, and this is the biblical way. Um, but there was never any kind of again, nuance or understanding around what made something biblical. It was a very like flat reading, this is what it says, and therefore this is what we should take it to mean. Um, and um, like I said, I was, I grew up with this idea of a um, divinely inspired text. Um, and that is still what I believe today. But I think, in going through those experiences, what I learned is that there is um, an inherent human filter to all of this. Um, and we are all coming in with our own biases, our own um, cultural understandings of what certain passages mean. Um, and so if we're not aware of that, the Bible can easily become something that that can be more so weaponized and used as a, a tool of oppression. And so to make it more of a liberating text, we really have to start digging deep into to why that happens and how it happens. Mm -hmm. And that in itself, it honors the text, right? Um, because there is a truth to the text that, like I said, is divinely inspired. It is coming from God. And if we try to, um, kind of ignore or pass off the ways in which um, different people groups over time have read their cultural context into that message, um, then we lose the voice of God. And that has become something that um, is very important to me to understand as a Christian, um, because that influences my relationship with God and influences the way I am able to experience God, um, the way I understand God to view me and, and the way I view myself. Um, and so this is something why it's become something more important to me. Yeah, I love that. I, I think often when I've heard the, um, the phrasing like, oh, well, the Bible says it, or that's what the Bible tells us. So we have to live according to that. It, the distinction isn't made, the distinction that you're describing here of, well, that's my interpretation of the Bible says that, or our interpretation of the Bible says that, um, to assert your own theology as like, this is scriptural and this is biblical, which we'll get into this descriptor as biblical in just a moment. Um, but I, what you're describing is a lot more nuanced and an invitation into wrestling instead of kind of a a blind acceptance of what others may say. Do you, does that feel accurate? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this ties in really well, kind of the, for this topic, the overt and bigger picture ways of what this looks like and the subtle intertwine a little bit more. Um, so maybe let's go into that of what are some of the, the subtle 
undertones of this popping up in different Christian cultures. Yeah, so like I mentioned before, um, we do tend to throw around that term um, biblical, biblical. Um, like this is biblical or we have a biblical view of mass uh, of marriage or, you know, we we take the biblical view of gender roles. And now I am um, I am less afraid to ask the question biblical according to whom um, like what part of the Bible are you basing that off of? Because even within the Bible, these things are changing over time. Um, so if we're talking about, you know, the biblical view of marriage, well, is it the view that's in Leviticus or is it the view that's in the gospels or is it the view that's in Paul's letters? Like, what is your biblical view of marriage? Um, and I think that that is one of the ways this plays out kind of su subtly is we just kind of assume there is a biblical uh, way. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and again, we're not really engaging with the text to really understand what that means. Um, another way this plays out is it does kind of create this cognitive dissonance um, between the image of a loving God that's shown to us through Jesus um, and the experiences we have with reading various texts within the Bible. Um, so for me, um, the way this has played out um, probably um, uh, very importantly and in, in my faith journey has been um, passages to do with slavery um, and sexual assault um, and how that's handled in the Bible. Um, and one of the narratives that comes up for me a lot is the narr narrative of Hagar. Um, and so this is a text that I have had to wrestle with kind of repeatedly um, and only recently have I really started to get to a point where I'm like, okay, I, I can work with this, um, but this has been, you know, a multi-year journey. And like I said, I grew up in Christian school, so this was a story I was first exposed to in middle school. Um, so the fact that I am just getting to the point in my life where I can really wrestle with this text, um, it says a lot about the way we deal with these texts um, and, and the fact that we're not really addressing uh, the gap that can be found between our image of God and what is often portrayed um, in the Bible. Um, and I do think this ties in um, a lot with the way these stories are interpreted um, and the way this kind of was brought to the forefront for me um, is I was listening to an interview with someone named uh, Jonathan L. Walton, um, who at the time he was the plumber professor of Christian morals um, at Harvard University. Um, and he had attended a Passover Seder, um, which, um, it, it tends to be a really important experience both within the African-American community and within the Jewish community um, because within the African-American community, um, um, the Exodus um, story is one that um, really echoes um, because of our experience with slavery as well. Um, and so, um, Walton was kind of having this experience of, you know, he knew the story very well because he was also African American and it was just kind of a story that was very much centralized in our theology. 
and um, his Jewish colleagues started praying. And one of the groups that they prayed for were the Egyptians who died um, during that period as well. And that was something brand new for him. He had never um, experienced that before. He had never experienced um, someone praying for the Egyptians. Um, and that really shed a light for him um, on how we sometimes to kind of make sense of that cognitive dissonance, we have a tendency to dehumanize the people who are quote unquote, like decentralized from the text. So if we view the Exodus story as a story about um, the ancient Israelites escaping from Egypt and this horrible tragedy happens to the Egyptians, a lot of times what we say is that, well, the Egyptians deserved it. You know, they were wicked people. And now we're put in a place of, to make sense of what happened, we're removing the humanity yeah. from other people. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of ways, this is kind of, you know, antithetical to what mm -hmm. um, Jesus preaches in the gospel. He's constantly giving people their humanity back. So the fact that we have to make sense of these passages by removing someone's humanity, um, that was kind of how I started to reckon with, okay, how how is this showing up for me in other passages? And, and how does that impact passages like Hagar? You know, I, I got that message a lot. Well, well, you know, the story is about Abraham and Sarah. It's not about Hagar. But, but then what does that do to Hagar's humanity when you suddenly say, well, what happened to her was okay because you know she's not part she's not the central character in this story um and so i started to like really kind of zone in on that and really think about okay like um how do we restore that humanity to everyone in the text and and that's something that um that that i think i i kind of started to wrestle with more yeah, there's so much good stuff in here. Um, I Something that you said a couple minutes ago about the actual view of what is biblical changes throughout the Bible, um, that we don't have the Bible as a stagnant text that was all written in the same period of time. Um, and so you see a changing view of God throughout the Bible. You see um, a lot more questions than answers sometimes. I feel like half the Psalms if not more just questions crying up to God and asking um, for some type of deliverance or clarity or healing, whatever it may be. And so to paint the Bible as a stagnant, steady text that only presents one answer for the problems that we encounter just isn't what the Bible does in its own container. And so how can we expect that when we're um, looking to the Bible as justification for other things? Um, but this, this cognitive dissonance that you are describing too, um, even just the, sometimes when we experience dissonance, the tendency is just to abandon, like these things conflict and it's a lot of work to figure out how they don't or why they don't. So I might as well just kind of toss things, toss up my hands and move on, um, and abandon things. But this wrestling that you're inviting us into is for the sake of having a liberating text. And it is a lot of work and it's really beautiful work that can be done when we keep the hopeful trajectory of um, 
of Jesus in mind as we're doing it. And one more thing that I wanted to add in here too, I think that what you're describing here is of dehumanizing and emphasizing like, oh, well, Hagar is not the central figure. So we can kind of just do away with her suffering for the sake of focusing in on the main characters. I think it gets so dangerous because we start to do that in real life as well. This dehumanization that you're talking about, we don't just do it with people in the text. We do it with people that we encounter. Um, this idea that people, people are lessons, like someone else's suffering can teach me something, that mm. someone else in the text is suffering or is a wicked person so that we can see what real righteousness and real faithfulness looks like. Um, that's not only just some something cognitively to wrestle with, but that plays out in really real embodied ways and can be dangerous too. Um, so I wanted to toss that in there. But as we're we're kind of emphasizing here the the unhealthy things or the things that have been weaponized to harm people. I'm wondering if we can get into now some of these alternatives for more helpful beliefs that you've come across instead of putting the Bible as an idol. Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, just to, to reiterate again, um, we can regard the Bible as an incredible source of life and wisdom and not treat it as an idol. Um, so one of the things I was told by a mentor that I found very helpful um, is that the Bible isn't the word of God, but that the Bible contains the word of God. Um, and this was very freeing for me because it meant that I didn't have to I didn't have to reckon with every passage of scripture being God ordained or or being God's intent. Um, in other words, um, what happened to Hagar was not a it, it wasn't God like kind of okaying or co-signing that. It was just something that happened. And and so when we take the weight of that out of the text, it becomes a lot easier to kind of look at, okay, what is happening here? And now how can I try to make sense of it? Um, I think when we, we go into the text with this weight of um, everything is the word of God, it can create this very intimidating challenge of trying to further understand it because um, you are afraid of, you know, misinterpreting the Bible or misappropriating it in some way. So if we can just kind of understand that there is a message here from God that we're trying to understand, rather than each individual passage being, you know, this directly dictated mm. word of God, um, I think that can kind of help <laughs> us. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah, definitely, it very much lessens the anxiety around it and it, it helps us better um, cope and understand with the text. Um, something I really like um, from a podcast that if you have spoken to me about these sorts of things before, <laughs> you've heard me mention lots of times, um, is the Bible for Normal People. Um, and one of the, the hosts on the show um, always talks about, you know, every theology having an adjective. Um, there is no theology that exists in this world that does not have an adjective 
placed in front of it. You know, there is no um, way of interpreting of interpreting the Bible that is free of cultural bias. And we need to start examining and owning the ways in which that cultural bias impacts our interpretation of scripture, um, both in the helpful and harmful ways. Um, so I think part of this is that there has been a um, kind of um, stigma placed on cultural bias, um, that it's necessarily a bad thing. Um, but I think cultural bias is just something that we all have. It just it's, is. It's, yeah. It just is. Um, we all exist within a culture, whether um, that is American culture, whether that's the culture we're in being in Chicago, um, whether that's our ethnic background, whether that's our gender makeup or our gender identity. Um, we all have things about ourselves that influence the ways in which we see and experience the world, and thus will influence the way we see and experience scripture. Right. Um, and I think it only can become harmful if we are rejecting the fact that that is happening, or we're hiding behind this um, kind of thing of objectivity, um, because then we're not aware of how our own biases are impacting um, the way we're experiencing these texts. Um, and then that allows us also to delegitimize another person's perspective as well, um, which isn't fair either. Um, I think one of the things I have been able to um, really come away with um, in just studying the, the passage about Hagar is that there are so many interpretations of the story. There are so many explanations of what is happening. And I think if you hold to this view of there being one way or an objective way to view this text, then you're never going to really find the answers or understanding that you want. Um, because within all of those different views and interpretations, there are various cultural elements coming into place. Um, so there are people who are really concerned with, you know, Hagar as a woman and how her body is used in the instance. Um, there are people who are really concerned with her status as a slave and what that means, um, particularly in the ancient Near East. There are people who are really concerned with the colonialist aspects of her story. And so all of these kinds of interpretations and perspectives kind of combine and they help us to see different forms of truth in the text. Mm -hmm. And so if we if we don't look at the helpful ways that cultural bias can contribute to that, we can miss um, mm -hmm. an entire message. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, there is a harmful way <laughs> sure. in which uh, cultural bias can impact the text. Um, so um, one of those ways is if, um, you know, if you are coming from a cultural bias that says that slavery is okay, that person can also read a certain interpretation into the text that is not so helpful. And so then the question can become, well, how, how do I know if I'm reading the quote unquote right or helpful cultural bias into the text? Um, and to that I say, cultural bias is always being read. It, it's not like you can pick the one that you're reading. Yeah. Um, but um, I would offer that 
look to Jesus of the Gospels, look at how he would have worked with the text, look at, imagine inserting him into the text. Um, and I think that can kind of illuminate a lot of answers. Um, if you insert Jesus into the story, and that story doesn't make sense, then that could be a clue that maybe you have to take back that interpretation and kind of wrestle mm. with it a little bit more. Yeah, that's so helpful. Um, a mentor of mine said one time that um, if you're looking to justify love through, this, through the Bible, you will be able to do so. And if you're looking to justify hate, you, will, you could go to the text and find that. And it's because of your cultural lens, not because of this inherent liberation and freedom and abundant love that we can find, but we can go to scripture and really find what we are looking for because we're not these objective people. Interpretation of words doesn't happen in a bubble. And instead of that being something, it can be really dangerous, like what you're describing here, but it's also just a necessary reminder to acknowledge who we are, who we um, have been shaped by, the people that we've listened to, because we bring all of that to scripture as we're reading stories. Along with your, um, the Bible isn't the word of God, but the Bible contains the word of God, which I really love. I heard some, something similar in a class once that said, um, there's not just one word of God, but there are many words, plural of God. So the Bible is just one word of God. We have the word of God in creation and in Jesus and in prophetic words. And we collectively as people are words of God. So that pluralizing kind of helps to take the Bible off of this pedestal that puts it above all else and helps us to recognize the way that God is actively speaking and moving and working through things beyond just the text. Um, I've seen some questions pop up in the chat about Hagar, and I'm excited because we're going to use um, this example kind of as a, a case study or an experiment in living ourselves into a new way of believing. So our concrete practice today is going to be this invitation to wrestle and to look creatively and reinterpret a story. Um, so Erica is going to lead us through this, and we're going to narrow in on the story of Hagar now. Okay, so um, so I think just before um, kind of jumping into the experiment, um, some of the folks on um, may not be as familiar with uh, the the storyline. So uh, just as a quick uh, summary of what happened. So the narrative of Hagar occurs over, um, well, it, it occurs over multiple chapters in Genesis, um, but um, kind of her active parts are in Genesis 16 um, and Genesis uh, chapter 21, um, eight through, uh, verses eight through 21. Um, so just as a summary of that, um, prior to Genesis 16, uh, God has established a covenant with Abraham uh, that he will bless him and make him a father uh, to uh, 
to um, a great nation. Um, he'll have descendants to numerous to count. Um, but by the time we get to Genesis uh, 16, he and Sarah have been living in Canaan for 10 years um, and they still haven't conceived a child. Um, so Sarah gives Hagar, um, who is identified as her Egyptian slave, um, to her husband Abraham to conceive an heir. Um, Abraham has relations with Hagar and she conceives. Following this, Hagar views Sarah with contempt and in response, uh, Sarah mistreats, abuses, or beats Hagar. Um, different translations have different things. Um, Hagar flees into the desert and she is met by an angel of God. The angel identifies her as Sarah's slave and asks, where did she come from and where is she going? Hagar says that she is running away from Sarah and the angel orders Hagar to submit to Sarah, but also makes a promise or covenant with her um, that she too will have offspring too many to count. Um, but that her son would be a man of the wilderness and that he would live in conflict with his neighbors. Hagar returns to Sarah and Abraham, um, and then the story picks up again in Genesis 21. Um, Isaac is born and Sarah orders Hagar and Ishmael out of their household. Um, Hagar and Ishmael are sent into the desert um, with few provisions, um, and once they run out, Hagar um, sits her son under a bush and turns away from him um, as to not be forced to watch him die. Um, the angel of God reappears to Hagar and reminds her of God's promise to her and opens her eyes to a well of water. Chapter 21, um, verses 20 and 21, um, uh, says, um, and this is kind of how the, that narrative ends, um, God was with the boy, meaning Ishmael, um, Hagar's son. And he grew up, he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran uh, and his mother got a wife for him in the land of Egypt. Um, so that's kind of an overview of the story. Um, and so, uh, like I said, uh, I just sit with this story um, and And, um, you know, one of the things I've had to learn is, is how to sit with the tension that's in the text. Mm. Um, and one of the ways in which uh, idolizing the Bible can be so dangerous um, is that it can blind us to the imperfections. Um, so like I said, someone who is an advocate for slavery who is reading this, and, and advocates of slavery did read this and they did walk away with this, um, is said, uh, was to say, well, God tells Hagar to submit to Sarah. Um, and so that's the end of it. Slaves are to submit, and that's the lesson we can take from this text. Um, but if you approach it with biases in mind, you could say, okay, well, this text was written from a particular perspective that centers Sarah and, he, uh, and Abraham. Um, so those are the people who are centered within the text. How does that understanding change if I center Hagar? Hmm. Um, and the, the, the tension is still there, um, but I don't have to throw out the fact that that command occurred or that it happened. Um, I can acknowledge it, but then I can start to move past it to look at the other things going on in the story. Um, 
And I think that's one of the lessons we can take from the story um, is that the Bible is a big enough text to hold all of these different narratives. It is big enough to hold the narratives of all three characters um, of Sarah, of Abraham, and of Hagar. Um, and God is a big enough God to navigate the needs of all three people, um, even if the human authors of the Bible didn't necessarily think he could, um, even if the human interpreters of the Bible didn't think he could. Um, because it's kind of, again, one of those implicit biases when we side over different characters, it's this assumption that God can only be for one person or a particular kind of person. And so I imagine us growing God to be big enough to handle the needs of various people, even when they are coming from very different perspectives. I, as you're talking, it's bringing to mind, I think it's a TED talk um, called The Danger of a Single Story or The Danger of a Single Narrative that I had watched a couple of years ago. And she, unrelated to scripture, but talks about how when we boil things down to one narrative, we remove so much nuance and meaning, and we can really create whatever narrative we want to support the viewpoints that we have. And this is what you're describing for us here with Hagar and using it to justify something that's clearly so opposed um, or oppositional to what Jesus preached and taught and walked out of that, that would slavery would not be something that Jesus signs off on, but you could still go to the text and find that through your particular lens. If you were only willing to view the story as one single narrative. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So I think we are good now that we have that bit of background to, to start with our thought experiment. Um, just going through the notes here. Um, Um, so something um, I want to talk a little bit about is um, modern reinterpretation or um, reimagination um, of problematic texts. Um, so they point us toward um, the God Jesus shows us. Um, and this is something that's done um, pretty much in a lot of biblical interpretation is nothing new. Um, but I think that it's something that I don't, I don't know if we use enough. Um, and again, it's, it's always done with the intent of centering the teachings of, of Jesus back to the text. Um, so you have a text um, and you're, you're trying to connect, um, connect Jesus and the idea of God Jesus presents in the text is, is kind of the goal. Um, so before I, I get into that piece, I, I did want to just do um, a little exercise first um, to kind of try to restore humanity to Hagar, mm. um, because I think that that's really important. And I think that can be helpful um, before doing the, the part I just mentioned. Um, if if within the text that character um, has faced a level of dehumanization. So um, it's not always necessary because sometimes that 
that doesn't occur quite so much depending on who you're doing this with. Um, but I think if, if the person you're, you're trying to do this for has faced or experienced uh, that, um, I think doing this first part first, which is um, just recentering that person um, and um, giving them back their humanity um, can, can be a helpful first part. Um, so how I, I do this for Hagar is that I uh, pretty much just imagine every emotion she may have felt mm -hmm. throughout every phase of the story. Um, so I imagine the betrayal she felt the night that Sarah gave her to Abraham. Mm -hmm. I imagine the mixed emotions she had when she learned that she was pregnant. Mm -hmm the confusion she felt over if she would be able to keep her son or would be forced to surrender him to Sarah as the primary wife, because Sarah was the primary wife. Mm. The anger she felt that she was beaten after she had conceived, because that would kind of seem to be the entire point of why this all happened. Um, the desperation she felt as she ran away um, to remind everyone they're kind of they're living in Canaan as foreigners um, and they're pretty much in the wilderness. So the fact that she runs away knowing not knowing if she could survive in the wilderness um, indicates uh, an act of desperation. The hope and relief she felt when the angel of God first appeared to her in Genesis 16. The fear she feels when she returns to Sarah and Abraham. The anxiousness she feels when Isaac is born, because it means Sarah and Abraham won't have a reason not to disown Ishmael. The disbelief at being sent into the desert with her son with hardly any provisions in Genesis 21. The anguish she feels knowing her son is going to die in the wilderness and there's nothing she can do as his mother to stop it. The joy she feels to be reminded um, to, to be remembered by God and his promise to her. The hope she feels when she sees the well, the determination she feels to find her son a wife that shares her cultural background, mm -hmm. the hope for her son's future, that he will have a future and that God will equip him to survive as she survived. Mm. All right. Um, so now we've done that exercise. Um, the next thing I do um, is um, I, I sit and uh, when I'm asking myself, you know, what do I do with this or, or how does this apply to me? Um, I just imagine Jesus of the Gospels in the text. So I, for example, um, I imagine Jesus sitting next to Hagar as she is crying in the desert. Um, so, you know, you have that image of a woman in the wilderness, in the desert, and um, she's pregnant and she doesn't know if she's going to survive. You imagine Jesus with her in that moment. Um, I imagine Jesus with her returning to Sarah and mm. Abraham's household. Mm. Um, I imagine Jesus with, uh, with Hagar raising Ishmael 
and trying to help him navigate what must have been a very confusing relationship with Abraham. I imagine Jesus with Hagar on the morning she is told she and Ishmael will have to leave and they're not being given enough um, provisions to survive the journey. I imagine him next to her again in the desert, certain that this is how her and her son are going to die. And I imagine Jesus with her again when the angel returns, reminds her of God's covenant with her and opens her eyes to see the well of water. I imagine Jesus with her as she returns to Egypt, a place that was her home, but probably now seems very foreign to her, trying now to teach her son her heritage, her culture. Jesus is with Hagar through her pain, her hope, her joy. And I can use this text that on its face is very far from liberating. And it can give me hope that if um, Jesus is there with Hagar, um, he can be with me too. I love this practice revolves around imagining because I think, especially with the the early experiences that you had with scripture that you described, things like imagination or questioning or doubting could be seen as a threat to scripture. Yes. And here, they're the only avenue that actually makes scripture accessible and liberating and beautiful. Um, this invitation into holy imagination, it's really wonderful. You are someone who's done a lot of work with this text, but not everyone may have the same um, accessibility or level of energy behind it to go and read books and study and listen to podcasts. But imagination and curiosity is super accessible. Yes. Like we all have that right in front of us. And to be able to enter into the text and studying about culture and things like that are really useful. Studying language is really useful. But here, having an imagination for what could be or what could have been, I think is a beautiful way to make. Um, to make this text liberating, to make it freeing and leading into, into love instead of into a justification for hatred. Um, this idea that creativity just enhances things and allows us to come to more loving and hopeful conclusions really is a beautiful thing. Yeah, definitely. And um, just to add on to that, I think one of the things that's really nice about this too is um, to your point, um, it's, it's all, it's, it, it can just be based on what you find in the text itself. Um, you don't have to like read any, you know, additional commentary on it or, or anything like that. Um, I will just, you know, add like, there are narratives easier to do this with hmm. than others. Hmm. Um, so for example, there are narratives in the Bible that can be a lot harder to do this with um, simply because we, we don't know as much about the characters involved. Um, they, they don't um, have as much uh, real estate in the Bible devoted to them um, as, as um, is devoted to other, other folks in the Bible. Um, and so I, I do wanna call that out that sometimes um, it does take, you know, being a bit more creative um, to, to um, implement this practice. Um, also, I, 
I did want to mention that sometimes I think we struggle with um, some of the laws that are passed down, um, particularly, um, I think, in the Old Testament and, and a bit in Paul's letters, too. Um, and the thing about laws is that they're just laws like there there's not like an accompanying narrative to go along with them um but something that can be help, helpful um in that way is imagining the people that that law impacted hmm. um and then imagining jesus next to them as well um and i think where that can really help us in our, our current situation in our current world um is that just like this idea of, of humanizing people, just generally speaking, um, it's not like we we do this in a vacuum. The way that we're able to make sense of the, the text, to make sense of the Bible, has implications to the way we view the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, so whether or not we're able to necessarily like, parallel our experiences with with people in the bible or you know necessarily see ourselves in in the various people who may um be impacted by some of these injustices um the the practice also serves to help us just be more empathetic people um and and that's part of this as well i love this so much that we've gone from idolizing a written text to being able to humanize and empathize with others and find more creative ways to intertwine scripture in that process. Um, you've left us with so much today. I just want to keep talking because this is so wonderful. But for the sake of time, Erica, would you be willing to close us in prayer? Yes, definitely. Okay. Lord, we thank you for being a God that is big enough, big enough to show your true self in texts that seek to shrink you, big enough to restore our humanity when it is stolen from us, big enough to give us hope when we are most desperate, big enough to squeeze the good out of, the, out of our worst moments, and big enough for us to feel your presence as we navigate through. And I pray that throughout this week, we are given reminders that regardless of how heavy this world feels, you are big enough. Mm. Amen. Amen. Amen.